Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening again, and thank you for being with us on ADH TV. I am Alan Jones. For those of you viewing around the world, I must confess that I find times such as this very difficult from a broadcasting point of view. How do you utter the words that Hamas terrorists have murdered 40 babies, including the beheading of them? The bodies of young Israeli babies, including some with their heads cut off, have been found by Israeli Defence Force soldiers in southern Israel. The bodies were discovered amongst burnt out houses, strewn furniture and torched cars. As I said last night, the barbarism and savagery was such that even tough soldiers were brought to tears and sought to comfort one another. We are not showing you those pictures, I can tell you. As a consequence though of this savagery, and these are savages, Israeli troops are now going house to house to retrieve civilian bodies in body bags. The Israeli Major General Itav Varouf said in a statement on Tuesday, you see the babies, the mothers, the fathers in their bedrooms, in their protection rooms, and how the terrorists kill them. It's not a war, he said. It's not a battlefield. It's a massacre. It's a terror activity. It is something I have never seen in my life, he said. It is not something that should happen in our new history. Well, Israeli forces at least have regained control of villages from Hamas terrorists, which is why soldiers are finding decapitated bodies and families burnt alive. One of the victims included, as you know, a Sydney-born grandmother, Galit Carboni, 66 years of age, the first Australian confirmed to be killed in the massacre. There are 10,000 living Australians in Jerusalem or in uh, Israel. And I know now that the government belatedly has arranged for flights for people out of Israel to come to Australia. But it's a rough scene over there. The death toll has surged, that's in Israel, beyond 1,000 and more deaths are expected. Israel says they've killed 1,500 terrorists in their counter defences. The question which I'll address shortly when I speak to the National Public Diplomacy Directorate, Directorate Representative in the Office of Prime Minister Netanyahu. She is the most senior official in the Israeli Prime Minister's office, authorised to speak on behalf of him. I'm going to talk to her shortly. But Israelis are being held hostage in Gaza, and now Israeli risks a bloodbath if it goes there into Gaza. Now, as I told you last night, Gaza is a densely populated land strip. It's about half the size of Canberra. It could see urban warfare, therefore, on an unparalleled scale. There's a population of a couple of million, densely populated. Hamas has baited the Israeli Defence Force to enter Gaza, where it has been warned, the Israelis have been warned that Hamas is prepared for catastrophic street-by-street -street fighting using up to 40,000 militants. It's said that Hamas over the years, and remember the people who live there, they hate Hamas. Many of them are Palestinians. And they say they do nothing for us, they won't feed us, they won't do anything, because this is where their money is spent. Over the years, they've built up a network of tunnels, which enables them to move weapons and fighters around the Strip. That's the Gaza Strip. And these tunnels, of course, are therefore unseen by Israeli drones that operate in the area. 
The Israeli Defence Force suspects that militants have an arsenal of weapons in reserve. The Gaza Strip is not even, as I said, half the size of Canberra, but it's got 2.3 million citizens, making it one of the most densely populated cities in the world. The Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu has threatened to turn Gaza into a deserted island. The latest reports say that Israel has now secured the Gaza border and is evacuating nearby towns where reportedly the bodies of 1,500 Hamas terrorists have been recovered after days of gruelling battles. As I said, the death toll in Israel has surged above 1,000. Hamas don't care who they kill. They also want to destroy Israel. Death toll 1,000. These are the worst attacks in Israel's 75-year history. I'll bring you an update of that later in the program when I speak to the representative from Prime Minister Netanyahu's office, and she is in Jerusalem. But closer to home, John Howard deserves great credit. He has stepped into the ring and called the Albanese government for what they are lacking in leadership. Now, there were Hamas terrorists murdering people in Gaza and Albanese and his acolytes and to his shame, I'm sorry, the new Premier Chris Minns were completely spineless in the handling of this pro-Palestinian protesters, pro-Hamas protesters, who burned an Israeli flag and chanted anti-Semitic slogans outside the Opera House. These pictures go around the world and people are asking, what has Australia become? Tony Burke and Chris Bowen, two senior Australian ministers, failed full-throatedly to condemn local anti-Israel screamers and activists who led two rallies, culminating at the Opera House, those pictures, disgraceful, celebrating the Hamas attacks. They were pro-Hamas, this mob. And this utterly incompetent police minister in New South Wales, Yasmin Catley, refused to apologise for police officers telling Sydney's Jewish community to avoid the Opera House, it wouldn't be safe. So an edict to the Jewish community when the same incompetent Labor leaders led an unauthorised protest, these are unauthorised, of 700 people marched to the Opera House and throw flares on the steps. John Howard said, when 9-11 occurred, there was unanimity response. I was in America, Kim Beasley was the leader of the Labor Party, and there wasn't a cigarette paper between us. He completely supported our position. Mr Howard stated the obvious, quote, this should be the same. Mr Albanese should make unequivocal statements, as should the Foreign Minister. Instead of that, there's pussyfooting and lukewarm condemnation. And then you've got the New South Wales Attorney General, this is John Howard speaking, Michael Daly, saying everyone should remain calm and stay at home. Mr Howard said, how can you remain calm when demonstrators are invoking memories of the Holocaust? People remain calm in that, John Howard said. He said, I never thought we'd crumble to this. We need leadership from the top. We aren't getting that at the moment. John Howard, magnificent. He went on. You can have strong views. You can argue about the Middle East. But for people to invoke the memory of the most appalling crime in humanity, the extermination of six million Jews in gas chambers is terrible. John Howard said, it is totally beyond the pale, as far as I'm concerned, to have people chanting those things he said, it's a catastrophic descent from civility that I never thought I'd see. He said, there is no room for moral equivalence when you have people murdering babies. Well done, John Howard. We supposedly have a National Security Council comprising the nation's most senior ministers, intelligence and military chiefs, top diplomats. 
No meeting of the National Security Council has been called by Prime Minister Albanese on the Israel-Hamas conflict, despite 10,000 Australians are in a war-torn country, along with the potential hit to the global economy. No meeting of the National Security Council has been called and none is scheduled. Beyond belief, this, this is Labor at its worst. Tony Burke, the Leader of the House, the boss of the Parliament beyond the Speaker, failed to directly condemn a preacher in his own electorate who said he was elated at the murder of Israelis. In Mr Burke's own electorate in South West Sydney, a rally took place where speakers described attacks on Israel as an act of courage and resistance. Mr Burke silent. The Executive Council of Australian Jury correctly and emphatically said that what took place at the Opera House and in Mr Burke's electorate, quote, shows a complete lack of leadership when it is needed most. He said, quote, it cannot be that the loudest voices are those calling for Jews to be gassed while the voices of moderation, peace and tolerance are entirely absent. He said Burke and his colleagues have much to answer for. And then there's Bowen, who failed to make any direct condemnation of Hamas or its supporters in Australia. Consider this. The Opera House, as you know, is one of the wonders of the world, synonymous with Australia. And there were pictures of Australians, allegedly Australians, chanting anti-Semitic attacks like F the Jews and gas the Jews, F Israel, and supporters of Hamas marching in the streets. Where is this police commissioner on over half a million dollars a year? Few people even know a name. This is a major crisis for Chris Minns, the new Premier of New South Wales. Who allowed these people to march to the Opera House? Who authorised the Jewish community to be told that their safety couldn't be assured. It is not good enough for you, Premier Minns, who must surely be embarrassed by his commissioner and his police minister, for the Premier to say that, oh, police made an operational decision. Hang on, we are not that stupid. It is not good enough to say, oh yes, to a rabble supporting a terrorist organisation like Hamas, and then telling the potential victims, the Jewish community, there would be quite significant risk to attend the Opera House. But here's the rub. You have this absolute and utterly out of her depth dope, who is the police minister, Yasmin Catley, from up Newcastle way, saying, are you ready for it? Saying, the protest was unauthorised without requisite paperwork. Unauthorised without requisite paperwork. Here are Catley's exact words, quote, police did not approve the march. There was no authorisation, as her words, unquote. Well, what group of gutless individuals allowed the march to go ahead without authorisation? So Catley then says of the police that they determined, quote, the best option, these are her words, the best option was to control and manage crowd movements, unquote. And get this, they did that successfully. They did that successfully, really, if by the government's own admission, this march was not approved and there was no authorisation, then get them off the streets or arrest them. Or are we now in a city where if you're militant enough and ideological enough, you can please yourself? An unauthorised march in Sydney of Hamas supporters, the pictures go around the world. What have we become? This was a test, I'm telling you, for Labor leadership and they failed abysmally. Abhorrent scenes, fireworks and flares lighting up the stairs of the Opera House. And the only person arrested was a bloke carrying an Israeli flag. 
And the Jewish community are told, oh, you're not safe. What kind of leadership is this? The police commissioner, this Karen Webb, she should be in the dock. The police minister, Catley, should be sacked. And Chris Minns, you should have done that already. Please explain why a man was arrested for carrying an Israeli flag. All you Labor leaderless wood ducks, please explain why protesters supporting a designated terrorist organisation in Hamas were not arrested, when in fact the march was unauthorised. Tell us why no one was charged for shooting a flare, lighting fires, burning an Israeli flag on the steps of the Opera House and no one's charged. And this dope of a police minister says the crowd was managed successfully. It seemed to me that such a crowd were ideological second cousins to the savages in Gaza. Is it okay, Albanese, Wong, Minns, take your pick, any Labor leader if there is one, is it okay in this country? Let us know immediately for people to be openly supporting terrorist organisations. Is that okay? And that includes children. And we have a useless book of anti-discrimination laws. Yet here on the steps of the Opera House, through the streets of Sydney, was brutal, unapologetic anti-Semitism. And now we're told a pro-Palestine rally for Sunday will not go ahead. Labor as a party are in no end of trouble. The Premier of New South Wales, Chris Minns, has a man in his party, Mark Buttigieg. You've most probably never heard of him. He's the parliamentary secretary in the Minns government for industrial relations, work, health and safety and multiculturalism. His 19-year-old son, a student, joined the rally, the marches and the anti-Semitic chanting. It is not being alleged, I must say, that this 19-year-old was involved in any of the incidents at the Opera House. His father, the Labor parliamentarian, said he didn't know his son attended the rally. A pro-Palestinian rally, pro-Hamas, that did not have the correct approvals to take place. And this out of her depth, the police minister called it a spontaneous gathering. Spontaneous? Are you a dope? Of course you're a dope. Just imagine if this were Peter Dutton's son. Hmm? This young man, Gerard Buttigieg, is not a nobody in the Labor Party. He has a role within the Australian Services Union. He's the secretary of Young Labor Left, whatever they are. But as I said, just imagine if this were Dutton's son. This young man should be expelled from the Labor Party. What is this business about the things you walk past are the things you condone? An ALP office bearer, the son of a parliamentary secretary, went to the Opera House and was involved with anti-Semitic racist protests. Come on, Mr Albanese and Chris Minns, what are you going to do? Mark Speakman, the Liberal leader of the opposition in New South Wales, has called on Premier Minns to sack Mark Buttigieg, who's the multiculturalism secretary. And Mr Speakman has said, and rightly, as parliamentary secretary, he is responsible for making sure culturally and linguistically diverse communities feel safe, protected and embraced. Surely this man and this publicly the public position taken by his son condemns his son or the man himself condemns him. One of them's got to resign. One of them's got to be sacked. No one control the cho can control the choices that their adult children make, but you can disown their views. And the father has not done that. Indeed, the parliamentary secretary, Buttigieg, has condemned the opposition leader Speakman for, quote, sewer rat politicisation of his son. Bloke doesn't get the message. To call for a Premier, he says, to sack an MP because his teenage son attends a rally is nothing short of sewer rat tactics, really. No, Mr Buttigieg, 
It wasn't a rally. This was an anti-Semitic protest supporting a terrorist organisation called Hamas. Do some homework. And your son is an office bearer within the Labor Party. On almost every aspect of this disgraceful behaviour on Monday night, with pictures going around the world, the Labor Party have shown quite clearly that their ideological commitments are not consistent with Australia's national interests. It's long been said on national security that the Labor Party can't be trusted. Well, they had their chance on Monday night and they blew it. Now, as I said, I'll be speaking shortly to a member of the Prime Minister Netanyahu's office, read the latest in Israel and the government's response. But before that, a couple of things. The chairman of Qantas, Richard Goida, is stepping down. The CEO, Alan Joyce, is gone. The issue is performance and accountability. If that applies to Goida and Joyce, it should apply in rugby to McLennan and Jones. As I've said previously, the Qantas story is by and large a domestic story. The Wallaby story, well, it's only sport, but it has seen the humiliation of Australian rugby paraded around the world. The coach, minus his 11 assistant coaches, is booed every time his face appears on a TV screen. The collapse of our game has been chronicled in papers across Europe. If Joyce and Goida are gone, Goida about to go, then Jones and McLennan should be gone now. I mentioned last night the very sensible decision by New South Wales Premier Chris Minns to allow parking on the grass at Moore Park until appropriate car parking facilities are completed in 2026. This, as I said, is a sensible decision by Chris Minns and he should not be detracted by the bullying noise of a minority of complainers in the area. Times have changed, haven't they? Young people sitting for their HSC. Already the exams are going digital, allowing students to use a desktop or a laptop computer with pre-installed software and a locked internet connection to prevent cheating. So students doing the HSC Science Extension exam will use a computer, not handwriting, on October 25. And in 2019, Science Extension was the first and only HSC exam to go digital. I suppose we have to face it, don't we? Handwriting and letter writing will soon be a thing of the past. And the big horse race on Saturday, the Everest, one race with $20 million in prize money. I love the concept. I'm not sure about the detail. I'm not certain that any race, and I own racehorses, that any race should be worth $20 million. But it's a wonderful spectacle. And tonight I'll leave here and go to the magnificent culinary event for the first time in Sydney, the Taste of Turf, mirroring what Karen Scott Happer has done for almost 30 years before the US Open Tennis Championships, the Taste of Tennis. Karen's a genius. Tonight, the best restaurateurs will cook up a storm with their favourite dishes. Tables will be served by stars of the racing industry and guests will enjoy the best food, the best wine, the best, <coughs> pardon me, the best of racing and the best night out. Karen's done it again. The taste of turf. By the way, what should we back in the Everest? Think about it. That's the name of the horse. Think about it. Number three. And the danger? Number four, Mazu. But to danger of another kind. Prime Minister Albanese has found his way to Uluru. And it didn't take him long to criticise Peter Dutton, who's given active proof of why we don't need this so-called voice. As I said last night, we already have thousands of voices, but Peter Dutton pointed to the Aboriginal community in East Arnhem Land under the leadership, leadership of the late Galaroy Yunupingu as an example of what can be achieved without a voice. Said Peter Dutton, 
They've got a 90% attendance rate at school. They have a logging company. They've got a building company. They've got housing. They have a functioning society. And it is because of the leadership demonstrated by Unipingu and others around him over the course of a long period. And that is what we want to see replicated elsewhere, unquote. And that is why Peter Dutton is arguing they should not know. I must say New Zealand go to the polls on Saturday. The kingmaker could be Winston Peters, who has said again, as he said to me on this program, that a voice could not represent the myriad indigenous voices around the country and would do nothing to improve lives in remote communities. Said Winston Peters, I wouldn't vote for the voice on the number one premise that there is no one Aboriginal voice in Australia, just as there is no one Maori voice in this country. Now, Mr Peters' father was Maori. He's going into the election campaign, and this is why he's got massive support, promising that all the name changes in New Zealand will revert to English place names that they were before Ardern. A man called Christopher Luxon, the National Party leader, after the mess that Ardern made of New Zealand, about which she cut and run. She's accepted a damehood, by the way. Could you believe it? Ridiculous. Christopher Luxon will be Prime Minister after Saturday night, but will probably have to invite 78-year-old Winston Peters into a coalition. The New Zealand election is on Saturday, when we have to vote yes or no. Well, here we go. I warned you I'd talk about this. We elect people to our parliaments to represent us. Let's face it, you can't have 26 million people in the federal parliament. Each of us gets a vote to decide who will represent us, not to decide who we send to Canberra to please themselves. According to the latest news poll, 84% of coalition voters oppose the voice. As you know, the Prime Minister has provided no details. He says he hasn't even read the full Uluru statement. But here's the rub. That hasn't stopped Liberal members of Parliament, state and federal from supporting the yes case. What well, 84% of coalition voters are opposed to the voice. The brutal truth is this. Behind the scenes, these representatives of ours, Liberal, it seems, in name only, have run a secret campaign to frustrate the will of grassroots members and prevent the New South Wales Liberal Party, I'm just dealing with New South Wales, from supporting Peter Dutton and his no campaign. The Yes campaign has raised over $100 million from big unions, Labor, Greens, Teals, and of course the big corporates, money everywhere. But these Liberals purporting to represent us have blocked postal vote applications in order to starve voters of information on the no campaign. Well, the no advocates in the Liberal Party should be named. Advocating no. Susan Lee, good people. These are the good ones. Susan Lee, Angus Taylor, Holly Hughes, Melissa McIntosh, and to his credit, Alex Hawke. Indeed, Hawke, McIntosh and Senator Hughes are providing support for the no campaign on the ground. That's about it. That's about it. So, who the Liberal Party chooses for Parliament should matter, shouldn't it? Members should tell the yes Liberals what they think of their decision to back Labor's divisive, risky and permanent voice. Remember these people at the next pre-selection. Andrew Bragg publicly supports the Yes campaign. He faces pre-selection for the Senate next year. Julian Lisa, the safe seat of Barara, self-described as a constitutional conservative, resigned from the shadow ministry to support the Yes case. 
James Wallace is the Vice President of the Liberal Party, a factional protege of Matt Keane, and demands the New South Wales Division stay neutral on The Voice. Felicity Wilson, the state member for North Shore, publicly supports the Yes case and has campaigned with Zali Stegall and Labor MPs on the issue. James Griffin, the state member for Manly, attacks Labor for being too pro-coal, publicly supports the Yes case. Matt Keane, likewise, state member for Hornsby, attacks Labor for being too pro-coal and publicly supports the Yes case. Remember he actually told young people voting to ignore their parents. Natalie Ward, Deputy Leader of the Liberal Party, Member of the Upper House, refuses to disclose her position on The Voice, which means she won't publicly support No. Jackie Munro, a member of the New South Wales Legislative Council. She got there this year without a pre-selection by a margin of one vote, publicly supports the Yes case. Maria Kovacic. Now, remember, she quit as state president to run for the Senate. She refused to disclose her position on The Voice until after the pre-selection, when she publicly endorsed the concept of The Voice. Jenny Ware, federal member for Hughes, imposed there without a pre-selection. A lefty. She's declined to oppose The Voice. Mark Speakman, leader of the New South Wales opposition, publicly supports the Yes case. Trent Zimmerman, imposed in North Sydney without facing a single regular pre-selection, lost the federal seat at the last election to a Teal, publicly supports the Yes case and has joined the Yes campaign. Paul Fletcher has done nothing for the No campaign, despite being in Mr Dutton's shadow cabinet. He's the member for the Blue Ribbon Bradfield seat, refuses to say how he'll vote. David Coleman, the federal member for Banks since 2013, the same as Paul Fletcher done nothing for the no campaign and refuses to say how he'll vote, which means he'll vote yes. Scott Morris is apparently a no voter, but has done nothing at all for the campaign. Point is this, nearly nine in 10 Liberal voters say they intend to vote no on Saturday. And yet all of these New South Wales and Federal Liberals are either supporting the yes campaign or refusing to state their position, refusing to support the no campaign. And that is why the Liberals are out of power. Those elected to represent the Liberal base are completely out of touch with the base. In New South Wales, the party membership is down to just 9,100 financial members in a state of 7 million people. 9,100. That's not the only outrage. The lefties have essentially hijacked the New South Wales Liberal Party. Saturday is critical. We don't want this country divided by race. We don't want people given special privileges because of their race, their colour or their ancestry. We don't want race-based changes to the Constitution. We all put our hands in our pockets to help disadvantaged Australians and generously help Aboriginal Australians. For those Aboriginal Australians still disadvantaged, the answer is not a so-called voice. The answer is a pair of political ears receptive to the concerns that Jacinta Price has been outlining for years and been ignored. On Saturday, we should ignore the threats and the bullying and the intimidation and with confidence and courage, vote no. Well, I've mentioned earlier tonight, as I did last night, that it is very difficult to chronicle the gruesome cruelty and inhumanity of the Hamas attacks on Israeli citizens. This broadcast goes around the world on the ADH app, 
I said last night that these barbaric acts of savagery should horrify the world. I feel I should begin by apologising to viewers all over the world for the disgraceful pro-Hamas protest at the iconic Sydney Opera House on Monday night. Every civilised human being should recoil in disgust at what has happened to innocent Israelis. And yet there was Australia paraded before the world as a virtual sponsor of this barbarism. As I said last night, sometimes you feel ashamed of being a human being. I mentioned also that while the Gaza Strip, a tiny bit of land, heavily populated, is the focus, most Gazans have stopped believing in Hamas. As one woman said, they don't feed us, they don't provide anything, you can't build your future with these people. Let us get the latest on this savagery from the National Public Diplomacy Directorate representative in the office of the Prime Minister Netanyahu, Tal Heinrich. Tal is the most senior official in the Israeli Prime Minister's office, authorised to speak on behalf of the Prime Minister. She's an expert on foreign affairs and gives lectures on the Middle East through various organisations. She was previously an Israeli journalist and news anchor based in New York. She previously anchored a daily prime time show from Times Square and produced for CNN International from Jerusalem. Tell has, Tell has worked as a parliamentary assistant at the German Bundestag in Berlin. She's fluent in English, Hebrew, Arabic and German. Now we're going to do something differently tonight because at the time zones that we're doing it here, while Tal joins us from Jerusalem, there is no picture. And I said to Tal, don't worry. We're more interested in what you have to say and she'll be able to inform us and bring us up to where we are. So without a face that's there, but we will have some graphics of the terrible things that are happening in Israel. So Tal, we have spoken off air, but welcome to the program. Thank you for your time. I talked last night about the gruesome cruelty and inhumanity of these Hamas attacks. What is the latest? And have the Israeli Defence Forces regained control of that area around Sterot? So I, I will begin by answering your second question because uh, thank you for having me, uh, Alan, on this program. Um, our first goal in this um, war, in this operation, well, uh, the overall goal, of course, is to dismantle Hamas's military capabilities and to make sure that they will lack the motivation by the end of this to ever again in, in the coming decades for generations to launch an attack of this kind. Um, this was unprecedented, as you know, in both scope and brutality, the attack that took place on Saturday. But this war is ongoing. They keep challenging us. Our enemies keep challenging us on different fronts. We had a few um, attempts to infiltrate again from the south, from the beach uh, in around Zikim area. We had another attempt from the north and we tell our enemies do not try us. And as time goes by, I am, uh, it is very hard to, to admit it that, you know, uh, we thought that the worst was behind us with this attack on Saturday, but now what is transpiring is, again, the, the scope of the brutality, as you described. We had IDF forces and um, first responder forces in the vicinity, um, uh, in the communities in the vicinity of the Gaza Strip, the kibbutzim, some of them are kibbutzim. And uh, they discovered, I, I don't know if you've seen this headline, but uh, bodies of children yeah, and, yeah. and 
and babies, yeah. about dozens, mm. dozens of them. Some say 40, but I, I don't want to give you an exact number because that's, these are the media headlines. Again, um, some beheaded. It's, it's not some beheaded, mm. some beheaded. And also in one of the kibbutzim, uh, you you had bodies of, of babies. This is how uh, they described it to me, uh, with hand, uh, tied handed and also shot in their heads. This kind of it's it's inexplicable inexavagery brutally yeah barbarism just one question you're in jerusalem are you safe i I, i'm in tel aviv in fact right now i am safe i i am safe i i yesterday we had to run to the shelter a few times during the day uh right now it is around 10 a.m uh israel time and so far in tel aviv we yeah there was no siren that went off not today i understand so that in, i feel safe yes yeah, so i understand that in kibbutz hamas killed a hundred people which is about 10 percent of the population uh, tal in the last hour uh just before you came on air here i've had a note from friends of mine in israel and they tell me that terrorists have been calling bereaved families and taunting them after killing and raping their children. What do we make of that? I can I can tell you about one story of um, a granddaughter that's a young woman who posted on her Instagram, if I'm not wrong or not Facebook, um, that her grandmother went missing. Hamas saw the post and uh, they delivered an answer. They sent the video of the execution of her grandmother from the grandmother's phone to the family. They also posted it. So this is how the family had discovered that the grandmother was slain. God, help me. It's just, uh, uh, just awful. So you can't even talk about it. I was speaking, Tal, last night to a very distinguished Australian neurosurgeon in Israel, and he described how over 1,500 terrorists last Saturday morning invaded the south of Israel from Gaza and that over 3,000 rockets were fired into Israel, targeting indiscriminately all of the south and central Israel, including where you are, Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. Now, given that to us, Israel has always been renowned for its security strength, what has happened here to create what is virtually Israel's 9-11? It is bigger than 9-11, and Hamas has turned Gaza into a terror base. That's the new ISIS caliphate, if you will. But I can, it's even worse than ISIS. It's its ISIS on steroids. Why? Because it has a state behind it. It has Iran behind it. But putting that aside for a moment to your question, I, I can't really address it. Um, I'm not sitting, uh, I'm not part of the military discussions. As you know, I'm not a general. And uh, I know that Israeli citizens, uh, we all have questions and there will be a time and place for that. But right now we're so focused on one thing and one thing alone. And that, that is winning this thing. Um, because there can't be, uh, there, there's no other way. Um, as President Biden said yesterday, uh, if, if you saw his speech, yeah. uh, he uh, described the conversation that he had with Prime Minister Golda Meir um, after w- one of the previous wars, um, maybe, and, and she told him, we, we have a secret weapon. We have nowhere, nowhere else to go. The Jewish people. Yeah, yes, so we, 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 we do have, I mean, we, we, we don't have another place to go. Um, we have to defend our homeland, our ancestry, uh, homeland, and this is what we're doing. That's it, absolutely. It is hard, Tal, to understand how these terrorists were able to seek out and murder civilians, teenagers, children, women, 
young and elderly. Uh, it is important to tell the world, isn't it, but it's hard to say. Was there a concerted attack on women, do you think, who were brutally raped and their bodies then mutilated? Um, is this, were they addressing this terrorism primarily to women? Um, they, as far as we know from survivors also of, of that festival that took place in the South where we found over 260 bodies, um, we know from recounts of survivors of that horrific scene that they indeed raped women, which means murdered some women twice, mm. uh, basically mm. disgraced them. And uh, they did so next to the bodies of their dead friends. Mm, and I, I'm not sure if, if you've seen that video, but there's a, oh, yeah, a very viral video of, of mm. one of you mm. have. Uh -huh, yeah, I have. I mean, of one Israeli woman being pulled out of a van yeah. in Gaza mm. and, and walking hair. barefooted, and her by hair, by and her yeah. pants are dripping with blood. That's it, blood so, everywhere, and her hands are tied behind her back. Yes. Just tell us about the. It started when they targeted this youth outdoor party where they murdered over 280 use and then rape the women. It is hard, you know, even the hardest of people find it hard to conceive, don't they, Tal, how it's possible. I mean, to people with a basic sense of humanity, this is not the behaviour of an army, but it's a, of a depraved mob with an insatiable hatred of the Jews. That's it, isn't it? That's what their chart says, the Hamas, the Hamas uh, you know, charter. They they call for the annihilation of the Jewish state. They call for killing of the obliterate. Jews. Obliterate. Yeah, obliterate. They use the word, don't exactly. they? Exactly. Obliterate, right? How and, do you how uh, do you address they, this? How do you address this? How do you address this hatred and this determination to obliterate over and over again? So you know, uh, we can dismantle Hamas. We can uh, we can dismantle their military capabilities, and that's what we're we will do as long and, and it will take as. as as long as it will take, Prime Minister Netanyahu said. But as you uh, mentioned, Hamas is an ideology. Yeah. It's it's not yeah. only a military wing in Gaza. It's also an mm. ideology. And um, maybe contrary to what some of your listeners, viewers might think, um, this ideology is unfortunately uh, prevalent among many Palestinian people. Mm. And they believe mm. that when they chant uh, from the river to the sea, what does it mean? They, they, they chant from the river to the sea, which means from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. Mm. Uh, they want uh, to to have a, a, a Jewish free, uh, free of Jews uh, territory between the river and the sea. Right. I mean, you know, my neurosurgeon correspondent last night texted me that we had quite a bit of correspondence. He said these were the scenes that Jews witnessed and experienced during the Nazi savagery of the Holocaust. Uh, Tal, you can't argue with that, can you? No, you can't argue with that. Um, it's, uh, I, you know, be, being Jewish, I don't like speaking about the Holocaust in comparison no, to no, any I'm other thing on this planet. No, but, yeah. uh, no, 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 but, but, but yes, but I mean, also the, they kidnapped the Holocaust survivors into uh, the Gaza Strip, which is uh, despicable. <laughs> what did a Holocaust survivor do to them? What? Oh, no. oh, a grandmother no. that they murdered. A baby. Oh. 40 babies. More than 40 babies. Mm. Um, this is really un un unbelievable. And, and the state of Israel, with the support of so many people around the world, will do what has to be done.
Mm. We but, will but make sure that, that by the end on, of on this, that, yeah. Uh, on that, what has to be done, you see, I ask all mm -hmm. the time if I take sort of Myanmar, for example, you know, where is the United Nations here? What's the purpose of the United Nations, for goodness sake? <laughs> Well, yeah. we know that that's the, a good answer. The, hey, the that, UN, hey, that was a good no, answer. No, the, the UN usually has has its own bias against uh, Israel, but that's we it. we really, really, really hope. Um, it, that is not new. We hope that. I mean, right now we are receiving a lot of support from around the world. Um, we hope that this support will continue not only when Israelis are the victims, but also when we come out as victorious yes. from this conflict. Have and that is uh, a point that we we would like to uh, to uh, make because uh, this is going to take time, yeah. and unfortunately, we are there will be certain byproducts of, of of war, as you know. We are warning Palestinian civilians. We're calling on them to evacuate from these neighborhoods, from these buildings where Hamas uh, militants, uh, terrorists are operating from, and they know uh, where these buildings are, where these neighborhoods are. We're calling on them to move out of these areas. They know. We know that they know. Um, but Hamas, by the way, they, uh, they're aiming to use them as human shields. This is what they always do. They're calling on them not to evacuate from the areas where we tell them to move out of. Yes. Um, yeah. and, uh, ha ha have the rockets continued to enter Israel, not only from Gaza, but from Lebanon, as you said earlier, controlled by that fanatical anti-Jewish and anti-West Hezbollah funded by Iran. Um, what's the state of play at the moment as you're speaking to me? So uh, yesterday there was, uh, uh, I, I know that um, Israeli residents in, in the north, they had to shelter in as well. Uh, we, we are on high alert there on the northern front as well. We are on high alert around Judea and Samaria. Um, and uh, we, we hope that you know our enemies will not try us on other fronts because mm. we are ready we're ready for them too we have recruited more reinforcements uh our reserve forces and um we are and president biden also uh, said this yesterday do not uh, in his words he he directly uh told um the enemies of israel on different fronts do not do not simply do not mm. um so this is also what we say and uh, they're trying to challenge us. They have been uh, a couple attempts also to infiltrate from Lebanon and, and, and so on. Um, and we are ready for whatever will occur. You mm. know, we were surprised. That's uh, it's no secret by Saturday's brutal attack. Mm. But now we are wide awake and um, very alert. And we're coming just from them for them. Tell, we're coming for them. Uh, while, while you were talking, uh, we've just put some graphics up, and I'm mm -hmm. just speaking to our viewers now who'd be wondering, and we actually saw literally miles of empty and destroyed cars. And this is what happened, isn't it? This mob just came in and they just shot people, killed people through the cars and set them on fire. Uh, frightening, frightening pictures. Uh, you may well have to fight on two fronts, mightn't you, if you've got Hezbollah entering at one side and Hamas entering at the other. Are you confident that you've got the capability uh, to do all of this? And, and what are the prospects of Hezbollah joining Hamas? Well, we hope it won't happen. We know that there, there, these 
two terrorist organizations or two different arms of, of the same monster, mm. um, Iran, the mm. greatest state sponsor of terrorism on this planet. Over 93% from Hamas's budget comes from Iran. Hezbollah uh, is, is uh, way more funded by them. Uh, and uh, we're calling on them, you know, keep out of this. And uh, we are, but, but if they decide to, uh, as you described, to, to have a try, well, we will be ready for them too. Listen, um, Israel has done this before. The Jewish people, it's, it's not our first ride, right? No, as you say. no, 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 no. Um, no. And, uh, and yet here we are. We, despite everything that we've endured throughout our history, um, as Prime Minister Netanyahu said in his speech, uh, the Jews were once stateless, they were defenseless, but not anymore. We have no, a state to defend, absolutely. we have nowhere else to go, Wonderful. and this is what we'll do. Brilliant. Just repeating on Hamas Charter out there, 1988 calls for Islam to obliterate Israel, obliterate Israel. Just on this business about, therefore, Hamas winning that parliamentary election in 2006, and then in 2007, they violently seized, as I was telling our viewers last night, the control of the Gaza Strip from an internationally recognised Palestinian authority. Given uh, that Hamas is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood, which has been described as the world's incubator of modern Islamic terrorism, and given that Israel has long had the motive and the means to end Hamas rule, do you think it was a mistake, therefore, for Israel to accept the Hamas takeover? Well, we didn't really accept it. Um, we disengaged from Gaza in 2005. Yeah. Uh, at, at that point, Gaza, you know, there was talk about Gaza as the new Singapore of, of the Middle East. You know, so so much money was pouring in also from Arab states. So some of these states are now uh, uh, partners um, of, of Israel, allies in the region. Uh, you know, uh, the Abraham Accords with the UAE, with Bahrain. It is no, not coincidental that we see this, by the way, unfolding as the Arab world uh, is, is moving towards peace with Israel. We were just on the brink of a diplomatic yeah, breakthrough yeah, yeah. with Saudi Arabia, if you're following these headlines. So yes. uh, this is, uh, of course, uh, not something that Iran wants to see. It's not something that Hamas or Hezbollah want to see. Um, so it's not coincidental that they're doing what they're doing right now. Um, but again, to, to your question, um, Hamas, when we, did, when we disengaged from Gaza, there was this question mark of, you know, what will happen from this territory uh, when Israel is no longer there, uh, no longer controls this area. And uh, this is what happened. And I think um, you got your answer there because this is what, what will happen if Israel will leave other territories as well. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Just uh, just explain this, because I'm sure our viewers don't understand this, viewers around the world, because the IDF and the Defence Force have come in to stabilise the situation in the south around Gaza. Am I correct in saying uh, that, that the Defence Force is a 90% volunteer organisation comprising 18 to 22-year-old men and women and reservists? Am I right in saying that? I'm not so sure about the percentages, not right now, also uh, during wartime. But uh, yes, the IDF, we have mandatory service. 
uh, when uh, someone turns 18, if, if uh, it's, a, it's mm. a woman, so usually the mentor services for about uh, two years, that's the period, and for mm. men, it's three years. Mm. And uh, yes, and most of the force is uh, of reservists. So, the reason I made that point, Tal, is that therefore, in the wake of all of this, there are many Israeli families who would have children and grandchildren and close family members involved in this conflict. Oh, 100%, 100%. Every one in the country right now uh, either knows a soldier uh, or, uh, I mean, everyone either was a soldier, knows a soldier, or a reservist who's uh, in the front lines or helping in the national effort. And uh, unfortunately, every every it's a, it's a small country, right? Everyone knows someone uh, who yes, was either yes. killed, injured, abducted yes. into Gaza. So it's a, every, everyone is in it. Everyone is in it and we're all united. Uh, we're all united That's by fantastic. the military. We're all united by the leadership of the country and um, our... Yes, Our I resolve mean, is, is here. We were, there, there's no despair in the country right now. Yes, we're in deep mourning, but there's no despair. We, we know fantastic. that we must come out of this with our hand on top. Fantastic. And I mean, I think the world needs to understand that the Hamas threat is one thing, but this, as Talas said, Hezbollah has 180,000 missiles supplied by Iran and aimed at Israel. And they may have to counter that. Uh, Tal, I say again to those watching around the world, it is a bit rich to ask Israel to show restraint when their citizens are indiscriminately murdered. But for the world to see the disgraceful pro-Hamas protesters outside our opera house, I say this to you and I apologise again, condemning the Jewish people and our police force saying to Jewish families, well, don't come into the city, we can't guarantee your safety. So I say to people around the world who've seen these pictures, this is not Australia. It is, of course, and Australia with wall-to-wall -wall Labor governments, and they've taken far too long to decide whose side they're on. But the bulk of Australians, Tal, I want you to know, are outraged at the savagery that Israelis have had to endure at the hands of these acknowledged terrorists. So before you go, I'm really grateful for your insights, but how uncertain as to where you're talking to me tonight, how uncertain is the future? The future is certain. The Jewish people will prevail. The state of Israel will prevail. We are resilient and um, we will win our enemies. Brilliant. Just brilliant. That neurosurgeon said to me last night in a note, Tal, we know the lessons of history over the past 2000 years, including what is in living memory, the price we pay if there is no Israel. And he rightly said, we're fighting for our survival. It's fantastic. I love the optimism of you in the face of it all. And I just want you to know that there are people all over the world who are on your side. I hope we can talk again and I hope things continue to improve. Uh, the Prime Minister and everybody has the support of decent, civilised Australians and people around the world. So thank you for your time tonight. Thank you for these important words. And we will definitely speak again on this program. We will, I, I met you. your service. We will All indeed. Right. Thank you, Tal. That's Tal Heinrich, the National Public Diplomacy Directorate representative in the office of Prime Minister Netanyahu. Look, I've always said, and I'm not sure everyone in the media agrees with me, but as a broadcaster, 
I've always had great difficulty dealing with the circumstances that the world faces now. It's almost impossible to talk about these things and the talking about them alarms, distresses and concerns people. The focus, of course, on the Middle East. So in the, in the light of what we're learning today, it's just awful. Kidnapping, murders, rape, little children. It's beyond, it's barbaric and as I said last night, it's savagery. But let's go to Peggy in the United States. And Peggy, thank you as always for your time. Uh, it is barbaric stuff, the behavior of savages. What has been the public view of the American response? Well, thank you, Alan, as always for having me on and for covering this, which is such an important issue I know to Australians and to Americans who see that um, Israel is our closest ally in the Middle East. It's heartbreaking, it's tragic, and should be condemned by everybody. And, you know, this White House, unsurprisingly, was very late and slow to condemn this. They sent out a statement, they let the White House blue and white, but, you know, he came out today, two days late, Biden gave a statement saying he stands with Israel, which we appreciate, but beyond that, there wasn't a great strength and resolve. And this is what happens when you see the world through the lens of academia and think tanks. There are bad people in this world. The world is a terrible and dangerous place sometimes. And it can't be resolved by just talking about it or saying we stand with Israel. So it remains to be seen what Joe Biden will do actions wise to stand with Israel. But this is a carryover from the Obama Biden administration of appeasing Iran. And in fact, not one mention was made today of Iran in his statement. And when, Obama, when Biden said, you know, if anybody thinks of taking advantage of this situation, I have one word for them. Don't. So I don't know that that's exactly the strongest deterrent signal mm. that he could be sending around the world. See, j just, just taking up your point, uh, and I agree with you, we hope that the world is in outrage. I'm just reading a report that's just come in here, Peggy, which says in mosques, football stadiums and towns across the Arab world, pro-Palestinian, pro-Palestinian sentiment has surged after a shock Hamas attack on Israel, sparking a groundswell of solidarity for the Palestinians. From Ramallah to Beirut, Amman, Damascus, Baghdad and Cairo, people have distributed sweets danced and chanted prayers in support of resistance to Israel's long-standing occupation of Palestinian territories. Now, in the light of all of that, you have to ask yourself, it's all very well America saying, as I said last night, we stand with Israel. But when America has committed enormous resources to Ukraine, uh, what resources does America have to be able to provide the kind of support that obviously Israel is likely to want if Lebanon and Hezbollah start, start to join the whole show. Well, to your point, as much as I would like to think that the majority of the United States does stand with Israel in support, we've seen today pop up all over major cities in the United States, these pro-Palestinian rallies. And it's very dangerous. It's very disturbing to people. And you have to ask yourself, how many of these people has Joe Biden let across the southern border of the United States and welcomed into our nation? Um, we know that that's been a terrible idea. And I think the 
catastrophe of the Joe Biden administration will continue. Now, to your other question about the resources that we have, I do take great comfort in the fact that I don't think we know everything that we are supplying Israel with and supporting them with. I would imagine being our closest ally in the Middle East, we've got special forces on the ground right there already. We've got Americans who have been taken hostage. And I know that this White House will be working to get the freedom of those Americans. We've sent the um, aircraft carrier Gerald Ford to the Mediterranean Sea. We are supplying Israel with additional bombs and fighter jets. And so I know that they will be well supported by the United States. I hope that other allies all across the world will stand up in support with Israel. But I'm telling you, this is not going to be a brief conflict. Netanyahu has come out and said he will purge Palestine of Hamas. And so that means door to door ground war. Mm. This is yeah. going to be very extended. Yeah. And I'm wondering if Joe Biden's resolve will extend and support Israel through yeah. whatever it well, takes course, in order to well, rid that region of Hamas. Yeah, well, the problem here is, of course, the cognitive capacity of Joe Biden as to whether he understands all of this. It is very, it is very compl uh, complicated. There was a, uh, Peggy, as I said last night, uh, there are many, many thousands of Palestinians in Gaza who absolutely hate Hamas, who say they've done nothing for us, they don't feed us, they don't provide anything. All the money that uh, goes into Gaza goes into providing a military capacity to undermine and eventually destroy Israel. So there are Palestinians in Gaza who feel towards Hamas as we do. I, you and I talk a lot about Donald Trump, and I suppose we get into trouble for talking about Donald Trump. I don't apologise for talking about Donald Trump because I make the point again, and it's a very important point. None of this stuff, Ukraine, Taiwan, Hamas, none of it was contemplated under his presidency. Now, what weight, Peggy, therefore, do you give to the Trump argument that the $6 billion released, that's really $10 billion in our money, in oil funds, released to Iran in exchange for prisoner release, Donald Trump says that has increased the aggression of Hamas. He said, I will not be at all surprised if part of the tremendous wealth that they just accumulated went into securing this level of aggression. They didn't have that level of aggression with me. I'd be interested in your comments, Peggy. Well, I think there are a lot of people who agree with him. And of course, the, the Biden administration has not yet directly connected those dots and has not wanted to blame Iran for being involved in this at all. And in fact, Secretary Blinken said, well, we could refreeze those assets if we wanted to. And the question remains then, why aren't you going to do this? But back to Donald Trump, it just goes to show what strength coming out of the United States White House means to the world. We have a vacuum of power right now. And weakness on the world stage led by Joe Biden. And so whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's Israel now, we see that weakness is creating disaster all over the world. And we can point all those fingers back to Joe Biden. Donald Trump was a strong leader. People feared him. He got peace through strength, not just military strength, but economic strength. And that's really where I worry about the depths of America to support. I know we have the greatest fighting force in the world, but do we have the economics on our side during Biden's terrible economic policies 
to support a long protracted war mm. um, with Israel. I should just repeat what I said last night in relation to that money. And I do think it's splitting straws because the money technically was not US taxpayer dollars, but Iranian money that had been frozen under US penalties. Uh, Peggy, what argument is being ventilated that under by the Biden administration, I'll come back to the point that I made before. And indeed, this is us as well. It's not just the Biden administration, all allied governments. And that is especially ours, and I've argued this about Australia, that in the face of the Ukraine war, we haven't ramped up the industrial production of ammunition and weapons. So if the Western arsenal has been gravely depleted, when, as I said last night, China, Iran and North Korea have not fired a single shot, um, does the West stand weak in the face of this dreadful challenge in the Middle East? Well, we're definitely weaker under Joe Biden and trying to fight many fires on many fronts. Most of these fires are ones that Joe Biden himself started. And actually, there's reports coming out that perhaps some of the weaponry that's being used against Israel came from Afghanistan, that Joe Biden left behind in Afghanistan. And so we just have to wonder how much will how much more will the world have to endure? We cannot get rid of this president and his administration fast enough. America is suffering and we see the world is suffering as well under his absolute failure of leadership. He's made the world a less safe place. Our allies can't trust us and our enemies certainly don't fear us. Mm. Just uh, one other thing. I mean, I made this point and I'd make it to you again. Has there been any discussion in America that if we are the allies, Americans' allies, are fighting on two fronts, Ukraine and the Middle East, does China sit back and say, this is the time to take Taiwan. There's no capacity about the enemy to oppose us. Well, we certainly haven't given them any pause to consider doing anything else. You know, under Joe Biden, the world has taken the enemies of America and of the West have taken advantage of that weakness. And we can't get somebody like Donald Trump back in the White House quickly enough because this all comes down to not American capacity, but it comes down to American leadership. And Joe Biden, this is one more test that he is failing. He's failing to call out Iran. He's failing to call out the fact that China and Russia would love to see um, America and Israel decline, not only in their relationship, but in their strength. And so we know they're sitting on the sidelines and there's nothing that's happening right now that will give them pause for moving forward. Absolutely. Uh, just a quick one. Where are, we, where are we on McCarthy and the speakership? Uh, who will the Republicans choose to replace him? Uh, is that any closer to being resolved? It is. In fact, um, the Republicans met back on Capitol Hill today and they're having a speaker's forum, basically, where they're going to hear from the different people who have said that they would um, seek the speakership. I anticipate that it will be Jim Jordan, who is the head of the Foreign Affairs um the House Foreign Intelligence Committee. And his his main probably rival would be Steve Scalise, who's the former whip on the Republican side. He's also great. I think both are widely respected across the Republicans, um, the caucus. But I think that since Steve Scalise right now is battling blood cancer, there's a concern that he may not have the strength of the stamina, even though he's widely regarded um, by the House conference. Um, I, I think it'll wind up being Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan. We hopefully will have a vote within the next day or two. 
America and the world is waiting on this because the House cannot conduct business until there's a speaker. And we need them to convene and to be unified now more than ever. Yeah, Jordan is a very, very good man. Jim Jordan, a very good man. Uh, Peggy, just another issue here. Where are we with Robert F. Kennedy Jr.? Uh, This is a big story, I think. The nephew of the assassinated President JFK, the son of the assassinated Robert Kennedy, when Robert Kennedy was campaigning for the presidency, he's now ditched the party of his family, the Democrats. And he says he'll try to plot a path to the White House as an independent. Now, in the last 24 hours, uh, Robert Fitzgerald Kennedy Jr. has launched a fresh election campaign in Philadelphia, six months after announcing he was gonna take on Joe Biden for the Democratic nomination. What publicity is received? How significant is this? I see this as a big issue. If he continues on, if he doesn't pull out, and it's a three-way contest, he's going to take votes from Joe Biden. Well, he has said that he will take votes from Donald Trump, but I agree with you. I think he would take more votes, obviously, from Joe Biden. This is a huge embarrassment to the Democrat Party. I mean, Kennedy is synonymous with the Democrat Party, but he's left it based on ideas and he espouses very different ideas. Now, we still have a two-party system, so I don't think he has a pathway to victory, but he certainly has a pathway to being a spoiler. And we're hopeful that if he's a spoiler, he spoils things for Joe Biden. Although, you know, there's a lot of people who say they will never vote for Donald Trump. And so maybe they would give him a look because they're certainly not going to vote for Joe Biden. So I think he he should be seriously considered, but more as a spoiler, not as somebody who can win this election. Yeah, just for our viewers, of course, Caroline Kennedy is the American ambassador here in Australia. And her son, Jack, has spoken against Robert Kennedy's presidential bid, calling it a vanity project. I'm not sure that kind of criticism has any cut through. But Kennedy says that America deserves an alternative to the two-party system, and that three-quarters of Americans believe that President Biden is too old to govern, and that President Trump faces civil and criminal trials. Uh, Peggy, the third candidate does change the dynamics of a presidential election, does it not? It really does. And we've had third party candidates before, um, but nobody obviously of this sort of notoriety. And so it'll be really interesting to watch. There are a lot of people on both sides of the political aisle who say that they're ready for another political party. Now, whether you can find one that will appease both Republic, disgruntled Republicans and disgruntled Democrats, I don't know. I think we would be more likely to see a four-party system than a three-party um, because mm-hmm. the parties are so divided. You can yeah. see the Republicans splitting, the Democrats splitting, but mm. I can't see there would be a consensus candidate. But mm. it certainly could change the dynamic and the percentages in the voting of the election. And some of these states that were really close, it could make a huge difference. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. By the way, the backstory of this RFK Jr. is interesting. He was kicked out of two boarding schools before being sent to live with family friends. He said in his memoir about his mother, who's still alive, I seem to have been at odds with my mother since birth. He admitted to having had a rebellious nature and suffering from drug addiction after his father's death. But at the age of 42, and those of you who've heard him speak, it's very difficult to listen. That's the great sadness about this fellow, uh, whether he's a good or bad candidate. He sometimes says things that are worth hearing, but at 42, he was diagnosed with spasmodic dysphonia, which is a vocal disorder with no known cause. 
Uh, Peggy, it's not proper to criticise anyone as a result of a disability, but when you're a presidential candidate, it makes listening to him speak very difficult, doesn't it? It does. And as much as you feel bad for him, that's part of projecting strength. And, you know, you could say the same thing for Joe Biden, who speaks sometimes in this very difficult to listen to voice. We need somebody who is going to project strength. He has some ideas that people like to listen to. But to your point, if he can't project those ideas with clarity and with strength, yeah. it's going to be really yeah, hard very. for him to get any Absolutely. true traction. And probably nobody would be paying attention to him if he wasn't the last name Kennedy. Yeah, that's a very good point. Just finally, given what we now know about compulsory vaccination and what it has done to many people and governments around the world seem unprepared to address that issue, uh, RFK Jr. became the leading voice of the American anti-vaccine movement. Has that helped him or hindered him? Well, it depends on who you ask, probably both. You know, the people who love the vaccine think he's a fool and the anti-vaxxers think he's a hero. And, you know, some of his policy positions and ideas are very different. Um, and so you get a lot of people who maybe resonate with him with a single issue, but that's not the same as governance, which is why I think that he'll really have a hard time getting 50 states of support. People are not single issue voters. They're looking at somebody who's not going to just be for or against the vaccine, but they need somebody who's going to close the border and solve the problems that we have on crime and project strength on the world stage and fix the economy, inflation and taxes. And I just don't see him resonating with a wide array of voters across 50 states in all of those categories. Well done. Well done, Peggy. Marvellous stuff. Look, great to talk to you. Uh, I will be telling my viewers, I think I have else where anyway, that I've got a commitment in Paris, can you believe, for the World Cup, the World <laughs> Rugby Cup. So Peggy and I will be off air for the next two weeks after this week and we'll resume our discussions when I return. So Peggy, thank you so much for everything you've done. Let's hope things are much improved by thank the time you, we come back together. But I tell you what, the, so the scenario as we speak today, tonight, is very grim. Thank you for your time. There she is, Peggy Grandy, the former executive Good assistant travel, to Ronald Reagan. Well, before we go, whatever else might be uncertain in this world, one thing is certain. It must be only dyed-in-the-wool Labor supporters who'd passed the time of day with this bloke, Chris Bowen. Has there ever been someone so full of himself with no justification for it? The infamous interview with me when he was the shadow treasurer and he didn't know the tax scales. Then when Bill Short was almost certain to become Prime Minister, Bowen presented a punitive and divisive tax policy and with customary arrogance said, well, if you don't like it, don't vote for us. Bill Shorten was gone. And then the National Economic Suicide Note, Bowen's energy policy. Well, now, in his customary smart aleck way, he's arguing that the nuclear option proposed by Peter Dutton would cost $387 billion. And Bowen, with all his misplaced authority with which he presented his tax policy, and with all the unapologetic ignorance with which he couldn't answer my questions about the tax scales, he now says, nuclear is too slow, too expensive, too out of sync with the competitive advantages in Australia, unquote. Those words mean nothing. 
Clearly, this bloke has no idea what he's talking about. Competitive advantages. Well, I'll tell you, Mr Bowen, our competitive advantage for years and years came from the domestic and export value to us of the energy from fossil fuels, a veritable energy powerhouse, one of the richest resource countries in the world. That's us. Bowen now wants all that competitive advantage dismantled for renewable energy, which will never do the job. And while Peter Dutton should openly be saying what the majority of voters want to hear, that renewables can't do the job, we should not be shutting down coal-fired power stations and we should use uranium for our nuclear energy instead of exporting it so that others can have cheap, clean energy. But of course, Bowen presumably knows more than the Westinghouse senior vice president. Now, of course, Bowen has no business experience at all. I think he's some little lawyer in the suburbs signing conveyancing getting people to buy a home, wouldn't he? Anyway, the Westinghouse Senior Vice President, Rita Barron-Wall, who's the former Assistant Secretary for Nuclear Energy at the US Department of Energy, has said Bowen's figures on a $387 billion cost of nuclear energy are, quote, incorrect and misleading. Don't you love this? She said, quote, I only have three engineering degrees and that maths doesn't make sense to me. She said Westinghouse's own small modular reactor cost about 1.58 billion for 300 megawatt facility. She said factoring in additional costs for transmission upgrades, nuclear power could be a significant contributor to supporting renewables for far less than $387 billion. Bowen, wrong again. What's new? Another politician completely out of his depth. But we are to blame, aren't we? How the hell do we elect such an arrogant dope to have such a significant control over our economic well-being? Would you employ him? Would you? But the bloke's on 300,000 a year. Look, that's it from me tonight. This is my last program for a couple of weeks. I have a commitment in Paris for the Rugby World Cup. I will be back on November 7. Behave yourselves while I'm away and stay with us. We'll have a guest presenter. No clues from me. Just join us next Tuesday night. Thank you for being with us on ADH. You can hear tonight's program on your podcast app from 6am tomorrow. Just search Alan Jones. And to all the members of the Jewish families who are listening to this broadcast, wherever you are around the world, keep your chins up. The civilised and decent world is on your side. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.